Uh, we're going to start by getting Wumi to read a passage for us. We're going to be reading from Ezra chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 13. So over to Wumi. Good morning, church. And when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Jezadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its basis and they offered burnt offerings on, on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the feast of tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundations of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Pasha. Now, in the second month of the second year of, the, of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shethil, Jeshua, the son of Josedak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Joshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God. The sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercies endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the shout was heard afar off. Thank you, Wumi. That's quite a long reading, but what the text says is certainly more important than what I say about it. Thank you for reading that to us. So I want you to use your imagination this morning, because the stuff we read in the Bible is about real people in real situations.
So first of all, I need you to come back with me, sorry, I'm looking at the camera, it should be back with me, about 2,560 years to a time and a place that are very different from our own. We're going back in time, but also in place. We're going to what we now call Iran and Iraq, but in those days was part of the Persian Empire. And I want you to imagine that you're part of God's people, you're one of God's people who've been living in exile in what used to be Babylon, but's now part of the Persian Empire. Your people have been living there in exile now for about 70 years. And in fact, it's all you've ever known. You were born there, you grew up there, and throughout your life, you've heard the older people in your community talking about how things used to be in Jerusalem how magnificent the temple in Jerusalem was, how worship used to focus around it, and how God used to bless the nation. But when the Babylonians invaded, they destroyed the temple, carried off its treasures, and tried to turn your ancestors into Babylonians. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ended up in the fiery furnace for refusing to bow down before a Babylonian god. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den for praying privately in his own bedroom. And the pattern of worship you had before Babylon stopped, uh, sorry, the pattern of worship you had before Babylon has stopped. No sacrifices, no feasts and festivals, and any worship you attempted had to be done very privately, like by the rivers away from the city. And when you're among your own people, you sing the songs of Zion. Hence the phrase in Psalm 137 about singing the songs of Zion by the rivers of Babylon, probably more familiar to most of us in the Boney M version. You've all been longing to return to that land of promise for decades, living in a home that isn't home for these past 70 years. Then, a couple of years ago, a new king, Cyrus, came to the throne in Persia, and he issued a decree that the Israelites, along with a number of other nations, could return to the land to rebuild the temple. In fact, that's one of these episodes in scripture which we can, we can confirm with external archaeological finds. You can see this Cyrus cylinder in the British Museum. So you, along with about 42,000 other people, returned to the land and started re-establishing a home. You've moved into your ancestral home and you've started the work of re-establishing your family life here. In fact, it's been an amazing year or so. First of all, after you settled into your homes, the altar was built once more at the site of the old temple in Jerusalem. And as soon as it was built, you all gathered in Jerusalem and restarted the regular sacrifices. The regular pattern of worship was happening again for the first time in living memory for most people. Then, again, for the first time in 70 years, you celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, the festival that remembers what it was like living in the wilderness and giving thanks to God that it had ended. Not unlike exile, really. Next, work began on laying the foundations of the temple again, rebuilding God's house among his people. This was a huge task undertaken by God's people coming together to make it happen. And then finally, today, the bit we read about at the end of that reading, the great celebration. The foundations of the temple have been laid, 
and all the people have gathered once again in Jerusalem today to celebrate this milestone. It's been rather a strange day though. Most people were shouting for joy that the foundations were laid and they could now begin to imagine what the Jerusalem temple might look like. But mixed with those joyful shouts is a whole lot of weeping and wailing. Among some of those who can remember back to how things used to be, the glory of the temple before the exile, there's great sadness that this one, this new one, isn't on the scale that it used to be. Now, I think the experience of the last 10 or 11 months has been a bit like the experience of exile, only it's been 10 or 11 months, not 70 years. We've had constraints on us that also prevented us from being able to continue our normal pattern of worship. We've been singing the songs of Zion by the rivers of Zoomland or YouTube. Whilst nothing like the 70 years of exile endured by the Israelites, it has still been a tough time for most of us, or for all of us. And throughout this time, I don't know about you, but I've been returning to a number of passages of scripture. I've been reading what I've come to call the COVID Psalms, Psalms like Psalm 46 and Psalm 91 in particular, the story of Noah, the story of Joseph, Paul's prison letters. But the one I simply can't get away from is this episode in Ezra chapter 3. I'm going to draw out four points from it that I just pray and trust will encourage all of us this morning. So the first thing that I notice as I read this passage is the primacy of worship. Now, excuse my slide, I'm not saying worship has to include lots of candles, but I also didn't just want a picture of a lot of people singing. Worship came before safety. Before they built the walls or established any security, despite the danger from the people around them, the first thing that, Ez that the writer of Ezra talks to us about is actually worship being reinstated. That rhythm of daily, weekly, monthly and annual worship before God. Worship's not just about singing, it embraces the whole of our lives, which is why I didn't want a picture of people singing here. But here we see the importance and the primacy of their gathered worship. These people gathered to worship before we hear about them doing anything else, before they start laying foundations, before they start bolstering the walls, we hear about them gathering to worship. They restored the pattern of worship as a priority in a new setting on a building site with everything very temporary. We've also had to adapt our pattern of worship and our rhythms of worship over the last 11 months, haven't we? And no doubt we'll have to again and probably again as we, as we move forwards. I was telling John before we started this morning how in Tadley we started back at the community centre back in October. It, we, I think we had four Sundays there and it was only on the very final one that we managed to get everything working as it should. We've been constantly having to adapt throughout this time. Some of what we do and some of what we move into in the next year will feel very temporary. Some of it will feel very cut back uh, and as though we are worshipping on a building site. But actually our gathered worship in whatever form it happens 
is important and is a really high priority. It has primacy in this narrative in Ezra. The second thing that I notice from this passage is that there is remarkable unity of purpose in what they did. They gathered as one. And later in chapter 3 and verse 11, we hear this phrase about them putting up the shout of praise. They were in this together. They gave towards the work and they gave, many of them gave their labour as well. These people have returned to the land with the express purpose of rebuilding the temple. It's an act of unity and of selflessness. They don't go back primarily for their own needs, but to ensure that worship is reinstituted for all. Uh, and they work together on this when they could have been rebuilding and furnishing their own homes, which actually those of you who've read on will know that they do later on in Haggai 1. But we do see in this passage that uh, Wumi read for us, remarkable unity among God's people there. It took them all to do it. Then the third thing I notice in this passage, and it comes at the end, is I've called it generational differences, but I don't want to emphasise the generational aspect of this. Because for me, there's a clear contrast here between those who are mourning that it's now not how it used to be, and others who are rejoicing in what God is doing in the here and now. As I said, I don't normally emphasise the generational aspect of this, although there clearly is one in the narrative. It's a sermon in itself, really, about each generation recognising, releasing and respecting the other. In our environment, there are some who are upset that we aren't able to sing together. I personally don't get too worried about that. There are others who are upset that we can't take communion as we used to or even gather together. And I've even heard that some are unhappy that our sermons are much shorter online. But as we resume gathering in the months to come, there will be those who will be upset that it's not how it used to be and mourning what's been lost. And others who will be rejoicing at what God is doing in the present and the new things that we're doing. We need to have compassion on the mourners while encouraging the rejoicers. We need to discern what are the things that are no longer part of what God has for us and what are the new things that we need to adopt and to retain. We need to discern between throwing the baby out with the bathwater and jumping on the latest bandwagon on the one hand and wrongly clinging to old ways in the other, on the other. I don't know whether you're grieving for what's been lost or are loving the fact that God's doing something different. But either way, you're still part of God's people and you're still part of that crowd, uh, rejoicing, shouting, or perhaps weeping on that day that we read about there. One thing I've seen very clearly in the last year is that we're all different. Some of us thrive in one environment, others in a completely different environment. But in this passage, it's expressed as a generational difference. But these differences show themselves in all sorts of different ways. But where they are generational, each generation needs to serve the other. 
I've loved in BCCs the way that actually our older generation have been used to adapting and changing. So I don't see this purely as a, as a generational issue. There are, there are those of us who love to be in on what's new, and there are those of us who find it very difficult to adapt to change. Both of those have godly characteristics in them as well. And then the final point that I notice in this passage is that exile changes you. The future is not like the past. Post-exile, things were never the same again for Israel. They would never again be an independent nation, at least not unless you count the events of 1948. They had been forever changed. They had learned that you could be faithful to God in exile and had found new ways of worshipping God while they were there. Those new ways would continue into the future with the development of the synagogue, which would enable them to endure through subsequent Greek and Roman overlords. The synagogue, we think, was an, an innovation of the exile period. While they still went up to Jerusalem for the mandatory feasts, their regular worship gatherings now were carried out on a much more local basis. We've seen change in the last uh, nine months or 11 months now that would normally take years in multiple environments. One of our local doctors commented to me recently that the surgery's undergone change that would have taken a decade previously, going online, self-referral, e-consultations and so on. In the business world, projects to make employees home-based, which are the sort of projects I used to work on, were completed in weeks rather than years. In retailing, we've seen a number of shop chains that have failed to keep up with the times go to the wall. Uh, and we've seen an explosion in online retailing, at least in our house we have. Getting rid of the cardboard every week is a major job. All of that had been coming for a long time, but COVID was a catalyst that triggered these events. And in the church, most of us would probably have laughed at you 18 months ago if you'd said we needed to put our gatherings online. But we've increased our reach and our engagement outside the church by doing so. It's been wonderful to see people connecting who wouldn't normally cross the threshold of a church gathering. The mission hasn't changed, God hasn't changed, and the gospel hasn't changed, but the world and the way in which we present the gospel has. In exile, some people probably lost hope. Others, like Daniel, grew in stature and in God. Exile changes you. And the last year has changed us. I know God has been at work in me. What's he been doing in you? Has it been growth or has it been despair? So we see in Ezra 3 a number of things that affect us now. First of all, the importance of gathered worship, whatever the external constraints. Secondly, God's people moving and working together in unity and maintaining that unity in the weirdest of situations. We see gener generational differences and the need for us to rejoice at what God is doing now, not to long for what used to be. And differences aren't necessarily generational. They might just be that we're different types of people. Exile changes you. The future won't be like the past as we move into the next stage of what God has for us in BCCs, in our own individual congregations and our own lives. 
and I really trust that you and all of us will know God leading us in this next stage of the adventure he has for us. Amen.